Hello to all my autoimmune warriors. If you have found this podcast, that means that you do autoimmune disease differently. I am your host, Christy Burke. I am a nutritional therapy practitioner and a self-proclaimed AI warrior just like you. Let's get into the show. Just a disclaimer here. This show does not diagnose or treat or give out any medical advice. Any guests that we have on the show are simply stating their experience. Welcome, Whitney. Thank you, Christy. I'm super glad to be here. For all of our listeners, Whitney Morgan is the founder of Morgan Nutrition. She is the creator of the Thyroid Reboot Method and a co-founder of Functional Health Alliance. Whitney specializes in advanced functional testing and root cause healing for women with thyroid issues. She's helped dozens of women with Hashimoto's and hypothyroidism eliminate their unique thyroid triggers and restore vibrant health. Whitney is a licensed acupuncturist, a functional diagnostic nutrition practitioner, a primal health coach, and a certified gluten-free health coach, which is very important with Hashimoto's. In addition to her private practice, she serves as a clinical advisor and instructor for Association of Functional Diagnostic Nutrition Practitioners. You did it. I got through it. <laughs> that intro. First, I want to hear your story and I want to hear about how you serve your clients. But sure. I love the word in your bio that is vibrant. I think I want to start there because... Tell me about why you chose to use that word. Sure. Well, partly from my own journey, but also most of the clients that I work with, they are women and women of a certain age. You know, they tend to be over 40. And each one of them has this recollection, this sense of who they used to be. You know, that Mm -hmm. time in their life when, They felt good in their body. And this is before the wheels fell off the bus, right? And that kind of blissful lack of awareness of what could go wrong, right? And when you're in a state of chronic illness and you look back at a time like that, you can see, oh my God, I just took that for granted. If only, right? I could feel that way again in my body. And Sure, a lot of women come to me and they say, okay, I want to lose 15 pounds and I want my hair to get thicker. They have very specific things, but underneath all of that is that sense of carefree vitality and just that sense of ease in the body, right? Mm -hmm. And when it comes right down to it, if and when you recapture that vitality, your whole laundry list of the things you thought you wanted really don't matter anymore because what you really wanted all along was to feel vibrant again. Yes, I love that. And I think, you know, as practitioners, I think what we want to do is get them to see that whole picture and not just the 15 pounds or Mm -hmm. the thicker hair. But how do you want to feel anyone that has had chronic illness and specifically, you know, I have Hashimoto's, I know what that feels like Mm -hmm. to have all of that stripped away. That's right. Tell us about you, your journey. I'm really curious to hear about how you got here. Yeah, it was a long road, 15 plus year road. In 1997, I was diagnosed with my first autoimmune disease and that was psoriasis. And between 
1997 and 2010, I had collected four autoimmune diagnoses. So I had psoriasis was the first one, then interstitial cystitis, and then Hashimoto's. And then in 2010, they found celiac disease. They weren't looking for it. They found it just as a fluke. I was having an upper GI study for a totally different reason. I thought I had an ulcer because I was in acupuncture school and I'm super type A. And so I was just studying all the time. So they did the upper GI. And when I woke up, my GI doc was like, I can't believe this, but I am almost 100% sure you have celiac disease. And the reason why he couldn't believe it is because I didn't present the celiac. I've never had digestive complaints. I could eat gluten to this day and not have gas, bloating, diarrhea, abdominal cramping. I wouldn't get any of that stuff. So I'm mm -hmm. what they call a silent celiac. And that's about 30% of celiacs can present that way, which is why yeah. celiac disease is so underdiagnosed. So when I got that diagnosis, he thought he was delivering the worst news he could possibly deliver to me. And I was so happy because I knew enough by that time, because I'd been walking this road of trying to find alternatives to conventional medicine to heal myself, which is what got me into acupuncture and all those things. So I knew enough when I got that diagnosis, like, oh my God, that's the source of everything else. I had that active celiac disease before my psoriasis, before my interstitial cystitis, before my Hashimoto's. That was the thing that came first. It's just they didn't find it until the very end. But the turning point for me, because I come from a traditional medical family, my dad was an orthopedic surgeon, my mom an OR nurse, surrounded by doctors my entire life growing up. And if we had a religion in my family, it was medicine and it could solve everything. So I had the utmost respect for medical practitioners and specialists. So of course, when I got my first diagnosis, I just leaned in hard to every MD specialist that I could see to figure out what I could do. Then when I got interstitial cystitis, for viewers who might not know what that is, it's a very painful autoimmune disease of the bladder. And if you can imagine the worst urinary tract infection you've ever had 24 seven and never goes away and nothing takes the edge off. You're just in constant pain. So I was in my urologist's office and he was the head of urology at a teaching university. So, you know, cream of the crop specialist. And what he said to me was, this isn't going to kill you but you will die with it. It's going to get worse. There's nothing that can be done. We can try and manage your pain, but you should join a support group. And I would say that was my rock bottom. And I could not imagine, I was, God, just barely 40. I could not imagine the rest of my life carrying that amount of pain with me. It was so overwhelming. So Every cell in my body just screamed, no. For the first time in my life, I would not accept, well, my body would not accept the expertise that my doctors was communicating mm. to me. And I didn't know what I was going to do, but I knew when I walked out of that office, sorry, no, that is not my future. I need to find another way. So that's when I jumped down different rabbit holes, you know, the uh, homeopathy, naturopathy, you know, all kinds of nutrition things and then acupuncture. 
mm-hmm. I was fortunate enough to have an acupuncture school where I live. So I went to their community clinic, their teaching clinic, and got treated by the students there. And that was the one thing that actually decreased my pain. There was no pain medication that could even touch it, but acupuncture did. And I fell in love with the medicine. I decided, okay, I'm going to do this. And so I started acupuncture school. And then halfway through acupuncture school, I get my celiac diagnosis. So that was a 15-year journey. And It took a long time for me to get off the traditional medicine path and to start really learning about other ways of healing. And everything along the way, whether it was Chinese medicine or Western naturopathy, I was just applying everything and experimenting on myself constantly. So it was definitely a roller coaster, but things Mm -hmm. were working, you know, and I remember a year after that conversation with my urologist in his office, I was at a dance recital for my daughter and there he was. He had a child in the dance also. So we ran into each other in the lobby, you know, when everyone's mingling around and he's like, hi, how are you doing? And, you know, thinking that I was going to be struggling, but I was like, I'm great. I have zero pain. I am hundred percent. It's gone. And he's like, what do you mean it's gone? That's not possible. You mean you're in remission? I'm like, no, 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 no. It's gone. You know, and I firmly still, I mean, believe that. I don't even put it on my medical history forms anymore. It's like, no, it's not in my body. And amazing for someone to actually cure themselves, heal themselves, you know, of something like I see, that's just unheard of. So that is really why I do what I do. And after I graduated from acupuncture school, I found functional diagnostic nutrition, which I really see it as kind of that Western complement to Chinese medicine, because Chinese Mm -hmm. medicine is kind of like the original functional medicine, root cause medicine. And functional diagnostic nutrition is the same thing. It's root cause, but with the use of advanced functional lab tests. So I had the best of both worlds, you know, new and ancient. Mm -hmm. And then I got certified with that and went on to, you know, do the primal health coach and certified gluten-free, things like that. But yeah, that's really my story. And that's why I'm so passionate about Mm -hmm. what I do, because I know the damage, what I call them as nocebos, these messages we get like, well, you know, you can't do anything about that. We don't know why it happens. This is your future here. Let me tell you how it's going to go. And we accept those things. You know, so many clients that I work with have accepted those messages. So for me to be able to say, hey, I'm sorry, but that's not true. Wasn't true for me. So I don't believe it has to be true for you either. I've been where you are. I've walked out. I found my way out. Come on, let me guide you. Let's do this. But rather than it taking you 15 years, let's try and get it done in one to two, okay? (laughs) that's kind of where I'm at. (laughs) Yeah. You're like, I already messed up Mm -hmm. all of it. Like I've been through all this stuff. I think that that is the whole essence of this podcast and why I call it autoimmune warrior, Mm -hmm. because the people that I have on this podcast and the people that I hope to inspire are saying my situation was when I got my Hashimoto's diagnosis, I didn't even know what a thyroid was, had no idea. And the endocrinologist pretty much said, there's nothing you can do about it. 
you will be on a pill for the rest of your life. And I even had an endocrinologist nurse tell me that my antibodies wouldn't change. Oh. That that number was just going to stay there, which didn't make sense to me, knowing even just the little that I knew at that time. And the idea of my own body attacking its own tissues didn't make sense to me. Mm -hmm. We've been living together this entire time, you know? Right. Why now? What is going on? So yeah, that's the whole essence of this podcast is to support people in that detective mode. Yeah, it's great. And it's so important. We need more podcasts like this because this really is, I think, the primary way that this kind of message gets out. Exactly. Tell me a little bit about how you kind of started specializing in hypothyroidism and Hashimoto's. Well, when I first started practicing, I was more general just because I think of myself as an autoimmune collector, right? Which is very common. Mm -hmm. So I don't see a big distinction between one autoimmune disease and another. To me, that's just location, location, location. When we start digging down into those triggers, those root causes, that's far more localized and more consistent. So when I first started, it was mostly just autoimmune disease in general. But after a few years, I realized that I'd say 90% of the people who were coming my way were Hashimoto's, you know, and thyroid disorder. And then Mm -hmm. this kind of Venn diagram overlap between what I would consider gluten-related disorders, you know, so people who were gluten sensitive or had celiac disease, but they also had a Hashimoto's and or been diagnosed with hypothyroid. That's very, very common. And so I just kind of drifted with the wind, so to speak. Like, okay, well, that's the majority of my crowd. So that's who I'm going to speak to. That way my voice can be a little more clear. The message can be more clear. Yeah, I get that. I love that you kind of specialized in the folks that are coming to you. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, I guess these are my people now. That's right. That's right. Pay attention to what the universe sends you. That's where you're needed. Okay, let's do it. Let's dig into gluten a little bit. Mm -hmm. Tell me about the link between Hashimoto's gluten. Tell us a little bit more about celiac disease and then dig in a little bit, if you will, to how to begin a gluten-free diet. Okay, let's start here. There is almost a 100% correlation between Hashimoto's and celiac disease. That doesn't mean everyone with Hashimoto's has celiac disease, but almost 100% of people who have celiac disease go on to develop Hashimoto's. Say that again. Okay. Not everyone with Hashimoto's has celiac disease, but almost 100% of people with celiac disease end up having Hashimoto's. Mm. So if you've been diagnosed with Hashimoto's, the first screening you should get is celiac disease. Absolutely hands down. Okay. Even if you feel like I don't have symptoms Uh when I eat gluten, gluten's not a problem for me. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Just get tested for celiac disease and take that off the table. Okay. So the connection. First, gluten is just really hard for us to digest. We have not evolved to adequately break down that very large inflammatory clunky protein. So it's very difficult on everyone's gut. It doesn't matter if you're sensitive to it. Yeah. It doesn't matter. Hard to digest. 
And because of that, and because of very specific properties of this protein, it causes leaky gut in everybody. Mm -hmm. So when we consume gluten, our levels of an enzyme called zonulin go up mm -hmm. in the gut. And zonulin is what regulates those little tight junctions between our cells that keeps things that don't belong in our bloodstream from getting there. Well, when zonulin goes up, those little gateways let a lot of stuff through and become dysregulated. It's like nobody's manning the post anymore, right? So you get leaky gut. Everybody does. That's just the way it is. Okay. And leaky gut is one of those dominoes, those first dominoes that really have to be in place for 95% of people who wind up getting autoimmune disease. Some autoimmune diseases mm -hmm. are more about genetics and they're like really rare things, right? That are controlled more about by genetics than the environment. But most autoimmune diseases are based on environmental expression. So you have to have certain dominoes lined up to actually progress to that state. And the first domino is, okay, you've got a leaky gut. And when you have a leaky gut, now all kinds of things get through and into the bloodstream that don't belong there, including gluten proteins and wheat proteins. So we have wheat germaglutinin, which is not gluten. It is the lectin of wheat. It also right. breaks down the gut lining and causes leaky gut. So gluten causes it by increasing zonulin. Wheat germ causes it because it's a lectin and it's very destructive to the gut lining. When wheat germ gets through the gut lining, it can travel anywhere and it docks on lots of different tissues and organs. It really likes to go to your thyroid. So when it goes to the thyroid and kind of docks into these thyroid cell receptors on your thyroid gland, the immune system goes, whoa, wait a minute, you don't belong there. You're not part of this, right? And so it goes after the WGA, the wheat germ. When it starts trying to destroy the wheat germ, a lot of the thyroid tissue gets destroyed as a result, right? It's like friendly fire. And that's what we call autoimmune disease by collateral damage, okay? So wheat germ, boom, sparks the immune system. Now you're off to the races and your immune system is attacking your thyroid. So that's one way. Another way is that part of the gluten protein shares molecular mimicry with mm -hmm. thyroid tissue. So the immune system, when that gluten gets through, the immune system can make a mistake because these proteins look a lot alike and go, oh, that's thyroid tissue, boom. And then it mistakes your thyroid for gluten because gluten has gotten into the bloodstream where it doesn't belong. Now it's going after your thyroid tissue because it's really trying to protect you, okay? Mm -hmm. So when people think about, oh, autoimmune disease, my immune system is attacking me, not really. It's trying to do everything it knows how to do to keep you safe. It's just making choices based on misinformation, right? Mm -hmm. So anyone with a thyroid disorder needs to eliminate gluten. Doesn't really matter. That was my next question is when you have a client, say someone has been newly diagnosed with Hashimoto's, let's use that as an example. 
And you recommend that they get tested for celiac. If their celiac disease comes back negative, you still recommend that they cut out all gluten. Yes, because the things that I just described, the wheat germ attaching to the thyroid, the molecular mimicry between gluten proteins and the thyroid, that has nothing to do with celiac disease. Celiac disease Mm -hmm. is something completely different. So celiac disease is an autoimmune disease that takes place within the small intestine, right? And it's triggered by gluten. So for people like me, if we consume gluten, that causes our immune system to just ravage our gut lining. So when you have a healthy gut lining, you've got kind of like the shag carpet, all these villi and microvilli, and they absorb all your nutrients and all good things come from this really robust, healthy gut lining. When you have celiac disease, so much damage is occurring at that gut lining that all of that shag carpet gets flattened. So mm-hmm. now you've got a slip and slide, right? And you can't absorb your nutrients. Your gut is leaky as fuck all the time and everything's getting through. But the autoimmune disease is in the small intestine. But one of the uh-huh. reasons why I believe that celiac disease just makes it almost automatic that you're going to wind up with Hashimoto's is because it's so damaging to the gut that you really have no protection at all. Everything's getting through. And most people are going to continue to eat gluten until they get diagnosed. Mm -hmm. So where is all that stuff going to go? It's going to go to your thyroid. Yep. So yeah, even if your celiac disease comes back negative, that doesn't mean that you're free of a gluten sensitivity. We have celiac disease and we have non-celiac gluten sensitivity. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. Explain what non-celiac gluten sensitivity is and maybe what it would look like. I believe that that's what I have. Okay. I've been gluten-free for about six years and my symptoms when I have gluten accidentally, I don't ever have it on purpose, but my symptoms over the years have changed. And I believe that's because of my gut health has changed over the years. Yeah. So we distinguish between them based on what kind of antibodies you have primarily if we're looking at blood work. So in celiac disease, you might have elevated antibodies to something called transglutaminase 2 or tissue transglutaminase 2 or deaminated gliadin, endomesial. These are three different markers that we look for to identify celiac disease. These aren't specifically looking at gluten proteins. They're assessing the level of damage that's going on in the gut lining as a reaction to gluten. So when we're looking for non-celiac gluten sensitivity, what we're looking at is we're looking for antibodies to wheat germ, antibodies to all of the gluten peptides like alpha-glyadin, alpha-beta-glyadin, gamma, omega. We're looking for protonorphin, gluteomorphin. We're looking for glutenin peptides and then all of the non-gluten proteins of wheat as well. Your amylase protease inhibitors, I mean, all kinds of things. So when I test someone for their exposure and reaction to wheat and gluten, I use a test called the wheat zoomer. 
it has two panels that screen for celiac disease, and it also has panels that screen for all of those other proteins or peptides of wheat and gluten. So that gives us the most comprehensive way to assess not only your level of exposure, but what does your immune system think about all these things? So for 90% of the people I test, their celiac panels are negative, but all of their other reactions light up like a Christmas tree. They're reacting to the gluten peptides, to the wheat peptides, to the wheat germ, everything. So I can say to them, all right, I would classify you as gluten sensitive. I'm not going to diagnose you that way because I don't have a medical license, but this is what I'm seeing here. You know, data doesn't lie. So your immune system is reacting. So you're more in that gluten sensitive camp. And all I can say right now is that I don't see any signs of active celiac disease or that you're even heading down that pathway. That doesn't mean that you won't get celiac disease in the future. You could. I just don't see any indication that that's what's going on right now. Because you're not just born with celiac disease. I mean, some people get it really early in life. For me, it wasn't triggered until my 20s. So I have a very specific situation with gluten. I've been gluten-free for about six years. However, I did not go full gluten-free. I would allow myself foods that have cross-contamination. Sure. And that has been over the years. That is very rare for me. I don't go out to eat very often. But the difference between cross-contaminated foods for me and a full-on amount of gluten, say like a cheese dip or something. Sure. That was the most recent one. That was an accident. Okay. (laughs) I didn't know that it had weed in it. Oh, okay. You know, over the years, I've never cut out the Mm cross-contamination stuff, but I've just stayed away from the actual, yes, the obvious stuff. And when I first cut it out, I did it because of my Hashimoto's. Then I realized that my migraines were caused by gluten, Yeah, which I didn't know. My grandmother also had celiac disease. So I would get migraines if I accidentally had gluten. They would last for days. Now I'm at a place in my health journey where if I have gluten, say the cheese dip, I get depression for about three days and it is effortless crying is the way that I explain it. And it's completely different from who I am on a daily basis. I know there was a lot there. What are your thoughts on foods that are Mm cross-contaminated if you have gluten sensitivity only and you are not celiac? And also, what are your thoughts on gluten and mental health? Okay, both awesome questions. So the first is, There's a premise out there that non-celiac gluten sensitivity is less serious than celiac disease. I do not believe that's true. I think they are both very serious. That's something you hear a lot. Well, I don't have celiac disease. I can be a little more flexible or not so vigilant because, oh God, I don't have this serious thing over here. But actually, I would even argue that the reverse is true. That celiac disease is less serious only because the conventional medical follow-up for celiac disease is pretty darn good. And people who get diagnosed with celiac disease tend to be a lot more compliant 
right? Whereas people, because of this false premise, people who get diagnosed as gluten sensitive and they think, oh, I, at least I don't have celiac disease, they're less compliant. <laughs> yeah, right? You are an For example sure. of that. Yeah, I mean, if we had celiac disease, there would be no cross-contamination. Exactly, so all. you're proving my point here. So they're less compliant and the conventional medical world has not really caught up to accepting non-celiac gluten sensitivity as a thing. Uh And studies tell us it takes 17 to 20 years for the research to filter down to your doctor's office. Mm -hmm. That's not a diss on your doctor. That's just how slow the information seems to trickle down. You know, it's going to be a while before your GI doc is going, oh, you have NCGS and we have a code for that. It's going to be a while. So Mm -hmm. there isn't the medical acceptance and the medical follow-up, there isn't that sense of urgency because it's really not real yet in conventional medicine. Uh So because of those two things, I'd say the non-celiac gluten-sensitive crowd are actually at far greater risk because of that. And it can lead to some pretty terrifying things, right? Like scleroderma or rheumatoid arthritis or multiple sclerosis. You know, I consider myself lucky. I have celiac disease. I'm so glad I have that diagnosis. And I didn't have to go through all of that. Oh, well, I don't have celiac disease Uh because I took it really seriously from the get-go. So let's just squash that false premise, okay? (laughs) Just, no, just erase it. If you are gluten sensitive, that's a very serious thing. It should be taken just as seriously as celiac disease and compliance should be 100%. There is no such thing as mostly gluten-free, nearly gluten-free. Well, I'm Mm gluten-free 90% of the... No, it doesn't work that way because one gluten exposure will set off an inflammatory cascade that can last for six months. So if you have a little bit of flexibility a couple of times a year, you're kind of screwed. You just are, you're inflamed. And people also make the mistake of using their symptoms as a gauge. Ah, Like you're uh saying, your symptoms have changed. Well, I would say that your symptoms kind of changed, but they're still neurological. We still know that gluten is impacting your brain and gluten actually affects the brain much more than it does the gut. That's where the majority of symptoms come up. So if you have panic attacks, anxiety, depression, migraines, if you have any sort of diagnosed mood disorder, Jesus, get screened for gluten sensitivity, okay? Because you could eliminate gluten and feel so much better in your head, right? Yes. So there's a huge connection. I just want to say that this is so near and dear to my heart because I was on depression medication for years and I see so many people struggling with their mental health, whether it's anxiety or ADHD, they're on Adderall, they're on anti-anxiety meds, they're on depression medication. And I do think that in some cases, gluten could be the key to getting your vibrance back, getting yourself back. Because the difference that I feel in a day is so fucking scary. Yeah. The fact that I figured it out and that I know that gluten is that trigger, Mm -hmm. I feel so lucky and I just wish that people were willing to take that experiment and take that challenge and just say you know what I'm just gonna try it you know but you're saying that your symptoms can't really be a gauge no you're really relying on testing 
which I totally get because testing is that marriage between holistic and traditional medicine. Right. And when people see it, they're more likely to do something They're more about compliant. It. Yes. yes. And I mean, I'm a bit of a hard ass when it comes to gluten and I won't even take on a client who pushes back against eliminating gluten. It's like, go talk to somebody else because I already know you. you can't get better. So forget it. But for me, I mean, I say you're not gluten-free unless your house is gluten-free. And that's just mm-hmm. the way it is. And I see it all the time, particularly among women who have families. They live with other people. You know, they've got a partner and they have children and they don't want to inconvenience the rest of their family. They think their gluten sensitivity is just about them. And they say, okay, well, I'm just going to quarantine myself in my kitchen and continue to make all this other food for other people. And gluten is still walking in the front door. It's still in your cupboards. It's still, you know, hanging out on your cutting boards and wooden spoons and pots and pans and toaster ovens. It's everywhere. It's in your personal care products. So there is no such thing as a gluten-free bubble you can put around yourself. You have to extend that to include your entire home. You have to create at least one truly safe place for yourself. And if that can't be your home, Mm -hmm. you've got a problem. I mean, I'm not a therapist. I'm not a marriage counselor. But (laughs) all I can say is I remember the day when I said to my husband, it's me or the gluten. That's it. Choose. I'm ready to go live somewhere else because my health is important. And do you really want me to die 10 years before I need to, or to be just riddled with symptoms that make me miserable and I can't enjoy our, I mean, really, you know, thankfully my husband is wonderful and supportive and he said, okay, you know, you didn't get a divorce that day. No, I didn't get a divorce. Yeah. (laughs) Now my daughter who was still living at home probably wished that we would have divorced, (laughs) but you know, she got used to it. I love that. And that's the kind of essence that I'm talking about when you're an autoimmune warrior. Yes. Choose yourself first. And my home is gluten-free and it's also chemical-free. That was one of the changes that I made really early on. I found out about genetic mutations with my liver and how difficult it is for my body to clear some of those chemicals. And it was an automatic Yes. You know, just like you. Yep. And that's really common, actually, for anyone with an autoimmune diagnosis. I see this all the time. Impaired detoxification capacity, whether or not it's genetic or it's for some other reason, it always is there. And what also tends to show up is either they're burning through their glutathione, which is our master antioxidant. Mm-hmm. It's what's called glutathione wasting, or they don't have the building blocks there's some sort of mess up in their production. They can't produce it as effectively as everybody else. So some experts do suggest that there is a correlation between glutathione deficiency or impaired glutathione production and autoimmune disease. It's kind of like leaky gut. It's one of those things that increases your risk factor of getting autoimmune disease. Because like you said, okay, now you can't clear these toxins. And so many of these toxins you're talking about can be triggers, right? For that push you over the edge where, okay, now you're going to go into Hashimoto's. That's so interesting because not to keep talking about my case, but, but it's my podcast. Yeah. (laughs) You can talk about whatever you want. 
the genetic mutation, it's called GSTT1. Mm -hmm. And it has to deal with the second phase of the liver. Yep. Are you familiar with that? It's the glucuronidation pathway, right? I believe so. Yeah. And it does have impaired glutathione production or use. I can't remember, but that is very interesting that you use that specific example and linking it. Yeah, for all of my autoimmune clients, no matter what their diagnosis is, I recommend foundational support. And so part of that is get your vitamin D levels checked, make sure they're between 60 and 80, have some sort of immunoglobulin support. If you can tolerate colostrum, great, goat or cow colostrum. If you can't, get the serum-derived immunoglobulins and high-dose omega-3s, so four to five grams a day of omega-3s and then daily glutathione. So for most people, that's a combination of, okay, I'm going to do some liposomal glutathione under the tongue. There's a great glutathione cream. It also has superoxide dismutase in it. It's made by Apex Mm. Energetics. You can put that on the bottom of your feet. And then you can take those building blocks. There's a formula called glutathione precursors made by Genestra and Soroyal. So you can take one or two capsules of that a day. You can put the cream on the bottom of your feet, a couple of liposomal pumps under your tongue, boom, boom, boom. And anyone with autoimmune disease should be on glutathione forever. (laughs) Just do it because your body will thank you for sure. I am going to look into that apex glutathione. You know, early-ish on, I did Mm -hmm. try some NAC. I tried some liposomal glutathione. I didn't notice any difference, Mm -hmm. but I realized that there are supplements that I'm going to have to be on for the rest of my life. And I would much prefer to just have them as my normal daily regimen, just like anything else that I'm doing to take care of myself. And, you know, with things like glutathione, omega-3s, vitamin D, let's say you spent three months and you took all those things that I just generalized, recommended, you might say to yourself, well, I don't notice a difference. But after six months to a year of taking them, if you were to stop them all, it wouldn't take long for you to notice Uh a difference. And that's Uh something that you need to keep in mind is that when things are getting incrementally better, we tend to not remember how we felt two weeks ago. So when change happens really slowly for the better, it doesn't register. But when we stop all those good things we're doing for a month or so, then we crash into that negative kind of body space. Then we go, oh, okay, I guess that was helping. Yep. And, you know, sometimes we look back and sometimes we can't figure it out either because it's been so long. Because it's been so long. That's right. Yeah. Unless you're keeping a journal, you mm-hmm. know, diligently, and most people don't do that for extended periods of time. So yeah. those are all really great tips for someone with Hashimoto's or even any autoimmune disease, I think. Well, I want to mention too, because you asked about that cross-contamination of food. Certainly there are foods, you know, condiments. I mean, gluten is everywhere, right? So it's really easy to come into contact with it if you're not like hypervigilant. But Cross-contamination is one thing. There's also this cross-reactivity, which is another. So most people who eliminate gluten from their lives, they tend to increase their consumption of things like rice and corn, right? Uh And they don't give up dairy, but rice and corn and dairy, 
they cross-react with gluten. So does millet, so do oats, so does yeast, so baker's yeast and brewer's yeast. So you can go gluten-free for like, let's say you're gluten-free for six months and let's say you're super vigilant and you really have eliminated it. But if you're still eating corn and rice and millet and cow dairy and your immune system has mistaken, cross-reacted those signals, you won't feel good on your gluten-free diet. And then people make that assumption, oh, well, gluten must not be my problem because I still feel like crap. It's like, yeah, you really Uh have to give up all of the things, unless you're going to test, test for cross-reactivity. Yeah. If you're not doing the lab work and you're just doing an elimination diet, you need to eliminate gluten and every food that cross-reacts with gluten. Cow dairy, corn, rice, millet, oats, and yeast baker's yeast and brewer's yeast. You got to get rid of them all. Okay. I think that's maybe why the autoimmune protocol is Mm -hmm. so successful. I was on it for at least a year, very strict. Do you still recommend AI? I feel like I could talk to you forever. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) We're almost an hour in. Do you recommend AIP for your autoimmune clients? Is that still a staple that you would recommend? I try and meet clients where they are. So it really depends on what's their starting point. I mean, someone who is on the typical sad American diet, I'm not going to switch them to AIP like that. No. First, it's going to be, okay, get rid of gluten, corn, dairy, soy, refined sugar, alcohol. I won't even, you know, say get rid of the rice and the millet. No, no, no. You can still eat your rice. But let's get rid of these six foods and then I transition them to a grain-free diet. Then I get them full paleo. So we try and baby step our way there as we wait for those results, right? So no matter what, if you're working with me, eventually you are going to be grain-free because there's just very little way to get sustained healing of your autoimmune issues if you don't make a grain-free life kind of your basic template. I'm not saying you can't ever eat grains again. You can, but therapeutically, you're going to need to be grain-free for a while. Mm -hmm. But when we get your test results back, now we can start to fine-tune and tweak things because you might not have a sensitivity to rice. Okay, so maybe you can have that sushi once a month that you want once we get enough healing behind us. You know, I have rice every now and then probably three or four times a year. And I love it, but I would never make Mm -hmm. it part of my daily routine anymore. So, you know, I really think that, like I said, it depends on where they're starting and it depends on how deep of a hole they're in. Right. I hear you. I do the same thing. Yeah. We have to meet them where Mm -hmm. they're at. We can't say go from a standard American diet to autoimmune protocol like that because there are steps that need to happen. When my doctor was wanting me to get on AIP, I would have done anything that she said, but I was actually a vegetarian at the time. And I had been a vegetarian for seven years prior. So in order for me to bridge that gap, and she, she did, she put it on me. She wanted me to go AIP and she had a couple of conversations with me where it was really difficult for me to wrap my head around mm-hmm. eating meat again. Yeah. So I ended up adding meat into my diet 
on purpose so that I could go on the autoimmune protocol and do it the right way. I'm so glad you brought that up because it's really hard to almost impossible to heal from Hashimoto's or any autoimmune disease on a strict vegetarian or vegan diet. I agree. It's too difficult. And I'm kind of a live and let live person, you know, but when it comes to working with people, I won't even work with vegans who aren't willing to make a therapeutic shift during yeah. our work together. Because I know, I just know, it's like, you're not going to get the results that you want. And then you're going to say, okay, well, this didn't work. It's like, well, no, you just can't get that healing. You need that animal protein. And also so much of the vegetarian and vegan nutritional templates include grains and legumes. I mean, heavy duty. So you're just kind of ripping your gut up on a daily basis. You can't heal a gut that is damaged by continuing a vegetarian or vegan diet. Now, there might be practitioners who are vegan or vegetarian practitioners and who specialize with autoimmune crowd. If that's the case, great. But boy, that isn't me. That's not my clinical experience. Yeah, I agree. I actually think that it was a trigger, one of my triggers Mm -hmm. for getting Hashimoto's. You know, it was one of those perfect storms. And my vegetarian diet for the last seven years, I was doing CrossFit. So I, mm. you know, I was really, really at a deficit. And then I, <laughs> yeah. And over exercising. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Is there anything that you want to add? Let's draw this to a close. Sure. I kind of want you to come on again. Yeah. Because you kind of specialize in women's health as well. I'd love to talk about hormones and dig into that a little bit. Sure. Would you be interested in that? I would love to. Yeah. And in fact, I would suggest, I don't know if you're able to do this, if you can have two people on a podcast, but my colleague, Paula Reed of Paula Reed Wellness, she and I have co-founded the Functional Health Alliance. Our vision is that it will become the number one root cause wellness hub. So it's free. There will always be a free version that people can join. And it's a place where people can come, be part of this group, have access to seasoned functional nutrition coaches like Paula and myself, have access to low-cost courses, group challenges. We are always there in the feed. We have live Q&As. We have private one-on-one coaches office hours. So you can even get these mini sessions with us. Wonderful. We designed this because we're such good friends and out of us talking business all the time, we both had the same frustration that so many women who want to work with us can't afford it. And they don't have the money for the private coaching. They don't have the money for the functional labs. So what do they do? You know, they go to Google or God, they go to Instagram influencers. It's Mm -hmm. almost worse. So We wanted to create this space where they would still have access to us. They could still get evidence-based, reliable information and cut through all of that Google influencer noise. And she specializes in hormones. That's really her gig, you know? So you would have the best of both, I think. And she's just a gifted, wicked, bright, really lovely person with a lot of experience. So I think have us both on. That would be fantastic. That would be really great. So I'll go ahead and get you guys scheduled for that. 
Is there anything you want to add for the end of this episode? Yeah, I would say to all your listeners, if you have any follow-up questions or if you're looking for some sort of coaching support, but you can't do the one-on-one, please join our Functional Health Alliance. It's totally free to join. And you can ask any questions you want. You could take advantage of our office hours and you're going to put the link in the show notes. I just want every woman who's struggling out there to get the support that they really need. And I don't want money to be an obstacle to that. Great. Thank you for being on Whitney. Yeah. Thanks for having me. This has been a great conversation. I can't wait to come back. I'd really like to connect with all of my listeners. So please find me on Instagram or Facebook at berkspharmacy.com. You can also find me at aiwarriorpodcast.com. I'd like to really connect with everyone. Podcasting is such an invisible way to talk to one another. So let's get connected. And until next time, be kind to yourself. 